intimidated without force by my manner, you assumed I was a guardian. That's true. By your manner, I knew you were a prisoner and subservient. The um, guardians pose as prisoners, but none of them would be intimidated by me. So you're a prisoner? Yes, only other prisoners would obey me. So you find a way to identify, so where does it get you? It's the first step. No escape plan can succeed without knowing who you can rely on. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, an eccentric guy who likes to play checkers using human pieces, because it's funny making people jump over each other. (laughs) My co-host is Guy, who I'm starting to suspect might be a guardian of this podcast rather than a prisoner. (laughs) Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So have you foiled any podcast escape plots lately? Well, I've devised some. I can't say I've foiled any. (laughs) Okay. Well, then we'll really see who's the guardian and who's the prisoner. (laughs) So in this episode, Checkmate, surprisingly, I I didn't find a lot of background material for what I think is a pretty packed episode with a lot to talk about, as we'll see. It was filmed third, so right up in the beginning. Did you notice this? And I really, once I noticed this, it it really impacted my viewing experience, which is because it was filmed right up front, unlike almost all the other episodes, they have a ton of filming that was actually done at Port Marion, Mm -hmm. where the village is portrayed. And it made a big difference because that meant the backgrounds were actually backgrounds and they weren't on sets all the time. And it wasn't always some suspiciously plastic plants and a blue sky behind them. (laughs) And once I noticed that, I kind of, it was like, oh, this is really nice because they're in an actual place and it's a really nice place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really notice that it was more outdoors stuff than usual. But uh, now that you mention it, looking back on it, I can see that. I also noticed with us just having watched Carry On Sergeant. A couple of surprising little echoes from that film. And I bet you'll get this, but I'll give you one of those challenges as we go along to see if you can spot them. (laughs) (laughs) I did spot one, at least. And I actually have a note about it in my discussion. So we'll get to that. (laughs) Okay. So with that, on to Checkmate. Sir, you play chess, sir? Yes. Come and join us. I'm the queen. Come and be the queen's pawn. Well, the show starts. It's outdoors, and we see an archway that leads to a pleasant wooded road. And immediately we hear that scary roaring sound that Rover makes. And he comes bouncing down the road through the archway. And it's really, it's well done. I mean, he just stays right on the straight and narrow of the road all the way. And he just kind of bounces cheerfully along. As he approaches, the villagers all move off to the side of the road, if they're in the road, and they freeze, as they did in episode one at number two's command. I feel like, in a way, we're getting to know the village, because my first reaction to hearing Rover's roar was, wow, he's really mad. (laughs) 
it totally made sense. I mean, if I were one of those villagers, I would have done the same thing. It's like, okay, something's going on. <laughs> Rover's pissed off. Let's freeze. <laughs> Let him go by. <laughs> oh, yeah. So everybody's frozen except one man. He's completely ignoring Rover. This man is a blue blazer, uh, similar style to number sixes, but it's blue. And he's got a straw boater hat, and he's just walking along. He's uh, walking purposely, like he's headed somewhere. Rover passes right by him, and they just kind of ignore each other. Once Rover has passed, everyone resumes their activity. And number six, who noticed the man who wasn't cowed by Rover, number six decides to follow him. I think you had a different take than I did here, and yours is probably more accurate, where my thought was when everyone else was frozen due to Rover and this guy was, you know, walking without fear, was that what Rover was doing was sort of clearing the way for him, right? Like somehow he was an Mm. important person. Based on the theme of the story, as we'll see, I think your interpretation makes more sense that he's just not scared of Rover, even if everybody else is. Mm. Then we don't know what Rover was up to in that case. (laughs) Oh, sure. Yeah, I could see it going either way. I mean, the chess game, even though we haven't seen it in any of the other episodes, it seems like the chess game is a big deal in town Mm -hmm. here. So they get to a big courtyard. I think this may be the same courtyard that we've seen before where there's the balcony that number two speaks through a megaphone from. I think this is the same place, but I'm not sure. It is, and there's actually, you know, the one little kind of note I could find was that as they filmed this early on, when they put down those chessboard squares, the white ones, that covered up the grass for about a week, there are other episodes you can see where the grass is different colors because the ones mm. that were underneath the squares got discolored. Oh, sure. Killed off the grass. <laughs> Very good. And I, I read somewhere, I didn't do any big research on this, but I, for some reason I, I was looking, I guess I was looking for a picture of the chessboard and I ended up finding articles that say that's been made a permanent installation mm-hmm. in Port Marion now. I thought that was kind of interesting. Right, right. Anyway, they get to this big courtyard, and the man in the straw boater hat approaches number six. he uh, It's almost as if he knew he was coming. He says, do you play chess, sir? And there's a lady with him who says, I'm the queen. Come be the queen's pawn. And we see the butler, number two's butler, who we've seen in many other episodes. He's approaching with another taller man, and the other man is carrying a large chessboard. And we just get a glimpse of that. The man in the boater hat and another man who's wearing a pale blue turtleneck, each of them is sitting at a high seat. I think the referees in tennis matches use this kind of seat, or lifeguards on a beach sometimes do. But they're sitting in these high seats with megaphones, and they're calling out the moves, and the whoever the appropriate game piece is has to make the move they call out. So number six, the pawn, he's standing right next to the queen. They're making conversation as all this is going on. She says that the man in the boater hat is the champion. We see a balcony where the butler's sitting, and he's making moves on a smaller chessboard. I liked the visual shot they did here. The camera's behind the butler, and you're seeing him move a piece on the small board, and at the same time you're seeing the human beyond him move on, on the lawn, <laughs> make the mm-hmm. same move. I thought that was kind of a nice nice shot there. Oh, yeah. Number six asks the queen who, who this champion was. Queen says it's hard to say, though she's heard rumors that he's an ex-count. 
<laughs> and his ancestors are supposed to have played chess using their retainers. <laughs> they say they were beheaded as they were wiped off the board. <laughs> Number six says, charming. <laughs> queen says, oh, don't worry, it's not allowed here. We're going to see the queen a lot in this episode, and she's a very sincere person. She could have been saying this ironically or whatever, but she's just very sincere. Oh, don't worry. It's not allowed here. <laughs> yeah, she she doesn't, she's not delivering obvious irony with it, even though a whole lot of things are allowed in the village. <laughs> so as the queen and number six are talking, the players keep calling out their moves on the megaphones, and they're getting engrossed in their conversation, the, the queen and number six are, so they're not really keeping tabs on the game. Number six asks, who is number one? The queen says, doesn't do to ask questions. <laughs> Which uh, is a little little more of a direct answer than he's gotten to similar questions right. from other and, people. And it's one of those clues that this is sort of intended to be an early episode, probably you know earlier mm -hmm. than I put it. Because I think by now, in the progression of the series, he wouldn't be bothering to ask people that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get the impression throughout this that, that this was meant to be an early episode because of some of the things that in later episodes he'd be more likely to take for granted. At the end, we'll talk about why I put it here, and I'll be curious to get your reaction to whether you feel it works or not, right? So. Mm -hmm. We get a shot of the war room, and the new number two is in there. He's watching the chess game on the big screen. He's a kind of a handsome guy. He's got a long face, and interestingly, he's wearing a little bit of eyeliner or mascara or something. Yeah, and he has a very nice, colorful suit, and, and this actually plays into this actor. I did a little bit of reading up on him, so we'll have an interesting conversation about him at the end. Yeah, right, very good. The camera that's displaying the big screen picture, it zooms in on number six, and it has an interesting sound effect when it does it. It sounds like kind of like when they power up a laser on the Death Star. <laughs> Yeah, this is annoying. <laughs> now that we all have Zoom cameras in our pocket, I think we'd be very annoyed if it was making this sound every time it's Zoom. Yeah. So the camera has zoomed back in on number six, and he's asking uh, the queen why she was brought here. And now she's just overtly evading questions. She just changes the subject and says, that's a good move, wasn't it? <laughs> number six says, I know a better one away from this place. <laughs> Yeah, he's just so hyper-focused on getting out of the village. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can't blame him, really. <laughs> the queen says, that's impossible. And Six says, for chessmen, not for me. <laughs> queen says, they tell me there's no hope. Number six says, I don't believe what they tell me. Now, the man in the boater hat, meanwhile, he's repeating pawn to queen four over and over again. And whoever the pawn that he's addressing is, isn't listening. The queen in their... Her conversation with number six, she suggests that she could help him with his escape. And the boater man keeps repeating his order. Finally, the queen prompts number six to pay attention because it's his turn to move. Before that, as part of him repeating his order, it gets like really serious. And we it, like more and more speakers start spewing the order. And we kind of get these close-ups on the speakers. On to queen four. Oh. On to Queen's Power. On to the Queen's Power. To the Queen's Power. To the Queen's Power. On to the Queen's Power. The other people on the board start all getting agitated. Like, it's clearly, like, you know, really annoying to everyone. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a terrible breach of etiquette. 
Yeah. <laughs> this is a classy chess game. We don't do that sort of thing here. So in the war room, the assistant says number six looks very placid. Number two says he's just a pawn. One false move and he'll be wiped out. <laughs> and on the big screen, the camera zooms out. And this is where the real cheesy sound effect <laughs> comes in. This was the zoom in sound was nothing compared to this. <laughs> in the dialogue here, both the conversation on the chessboard and in the war room, there's discussion that the queen is protecting the pawn, which is, of course, number six. Number two observes that she will take no risks to help him. Now, how did you interpret this? At the time, I didn't really know what to think. I didn't see anything that where she was overtly protecting him, but on the other hand, there might have been some instructions that she had. So my first thing was to think that, too, that they were talking about the queen on the board and that she was protecting him. And then it was a little odd because if there aren't actually repercussions to your piece being taken out, then why would this matter? Why would this be a conversation? But then I thought, I think they're having two different conversations here. Hmm. They're saying the queen of England hmm. is protecting number six from being oh. harmed. Hmm. And... Then number two, that's why it makes more sense than if number two says she's not going to take risks to help him. Ah. Now, okay. I don't know. We see in this episode, there's a lot of conversations like this where you just kind of have to decide what you think it means because they don't tell you. Sure. Yeah, that, that didn't even occur to me, but that could very well be a, be a factor here. <laughs> the queen only wishes she had that kind of power, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> The players go on shouting out their moves, and uh, finally one calls for a castling move, which is actually something I, I used to play chess now and then, and this is something I remember from it. It's The castling move is kind of a teleport where the king and the rook can shift positions. Each player can only do it at most once per game, and it's the only move, this part I looked up to be sure, it's the only move in chess that moves two pieces at once. So when this move is called for, the man playing the rook, who should be castling, he instead disobeys. He moves somewhere else on the board, putting the king in check, which means that the king's player, his next move has to be to get the king out of danger. Because mm -hmm. if he doesn't, then the king can be captured, which is the condition of win and lose in the game. Mm -hmm. So the rook has acted out of turn and wandered off doing his own thing. Number two's assistant immediately orders that the rook needs to be brought in for treatment. Yeah, and it's funny because, again, getting back to the idea that this chess game is really important in the village is like, oh, the rook has violated the orders and like they're, they're treating this like someone's trying to escape, right? It's really, yeah. really serious. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and a call goes out in the public address system, remove <laughs> white queen's rook to hospital. <laughs> Which uh, is amusing because it's phrased like a chess move. <laughs> so the village wagons, the little cart dealies that we've seen, they show up and they have ambulance sirens. Some men grab the rook and they ignominiously strip him of his straw boater hat. But this isn't the same boater guy we were talking about earlier. He's still sitting up on his eye chair yelling out moves. The rook is stripped of his hat and he's put on a stretcher and hauled away. Number six asks the queen what that's all about. She says, I don't know, the cult of the individual. 
<laughs> so that's probably appeals to number six. Mm -hmm. Number six asks what happens to him. The queen says, oh, they're well looked after. They'll get the best specialists <laughs> to treat him. Very reassuring. Yeah, you, you got to act quickly to treat that individualism thing. You don't yeah. want to let it spread throughout the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah you don't want it to met metastasize or whatever <laughs> that word is. <laughs> the game continues, and finally, the blue blazer guy, a.k.a. the straw boater guy. <laughs> I don't know what the guy's number is. It's it's hard to read sometimes, so I just... I think it might be 58, but I might be wrong about that. So, yeah, blue blazer guy is probably the best identifier <laughs> for him. <laughs> All right. Finally, he announces checkmate, and that is, of course, the title of the episode. <laughs> checkmate means the opponent's king is trapped, and there's not any move that can save him. The mm. game is over at that point. The queen and number six shake hands. Yeah, just a uh, note on that. I mean, all the different players on the, the lawn shake hands with each other to kind of show no hard feelings, right? <laughs> yeah, good game. Yep. <laughs> well, the man in the blue blazer asks number six to walk with him. And they're talking about the chess game, and Blue Blazer says the use of human pieces probably satisfies his desire for power, and, and it's the only opportunity one gets here to satisfy <laughs> a desire for power. To which number six replies, that depends on which side you're on. You know, if you're on the mm -hmm. right side, obviously you can have lots of power. Blue Blazer says, I'm on, on my side. Number six says, aren't we all? Blue Blazer says, you must be new here. In time, most of us join the enemy. Number six asks, have you? And Blue Blazer changes the subject a little. He says, let's talk about the game. He starts talking about how to tell black from white, which is to say how to tell the wardens from the prisoners. He says, you can tell them by the moves they make. Number six says, why complicated? Blue Blazer says, to keep your mind alert. Well, what use is that to you here? Blue Blazer again says, let's walk. He explains that now he keeps his mind alert just from habit, just to defy them. That's really the only gesture of defiance he has available or he perceives as available to him. He says he's too old to escape. Everybody has a plan, but they all fail. So that, that remark interests number six. He says, why? Uh, Blue Blazer says, you have to learn to distinguish between the blacks and the whites, which in this case is... Analogy for the chess pieces and for the guardians versus the prisoners. As they're talking, they're looking into a shop window, and I'm not sure what the significance of this is, but there's a little miniature chair in the window, and, and as they're talking, somebody puts a moderately creepy doll into that little chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my immediate thought was maybe she represents the queen, but it's another one of these little weird things in this episode that they... Don't explain, which I which I think is cool. It, it you know leaves it for you. One thing I noticed in this whole conversation, very unusual for number six, maybe unique in the series almost, is that he clearly, uh, from when he first saw the blue blazer guy, you know, not being afraid of Rover, and then seeing that he was the chess champion and everything, he seems to have a genuine respect for him, and mm -hmm. he's actually learning from him. You know, it's a really unusual in this series that someone else understands how things work better than number six and is explaining mm -hmm. it in a way that he hadn't thought about it before. So right. this whole idea of, oh, you can identify who's white and who's black, you know, which really means who are what they're going to call the guardians or who are the prisoners among everyone here. Yeah. And that, that's probably also another little 
bit of evidence arguing for an early placement in the sequence Mm -hmm. for this episode. Mm -hmm. So after they've seen the creepy doll in the shop window, the number (laughs) six sort of just, he just kind of wanders away. He doesn't even say thanks for the information or anything. He just kind of suddenly he vanishes and he, uh, he walks down a path and he's being followed by the queen. He catches on being a secret agent and all. He <laughs> realizes he's being followed and he pops out from behind a corner and startles her. He says, you're following me. The queen says, I had to see you. When do you plan to escape? Tell me your plan and I'll help. If it's a good plan, I'll escape with you, which is absolutely not suspicious in any way. <laughs> well, and again, she seems very sincere, but unfortunately, and this will, I think, keep being the case with her personality, She's one of these people who's just very on the surface, and even if she's totally sincere and wants to help him, he would be an idiot to work with her because clearly (laughs) she has no ability to keep her mouth shut. She has no Mm -hmm. ability to act, you know, like a spy should. It'd be interesting to know why she landed here in in the village because (laughs) it's not clear why they would be worried about her or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, number six is understandably skeptical and he turns away, but she follows him and she says, at least I can tell you what not to try. He's still not buying it though. And she somewhat sadly watches him return alone to his apartment. Mm. The next day he's leaving the apartment and outside the new number two is waiting in a wagon. He asks whether number six enjoyed his chess yesterday. Number six says, don't tell me you care. Number two says, of course, we want you to be happy, (laughs) (laughs) which is true in a certain way, I suppose. (laughs) Number six says, fine, just give me a one-way ticket home. (laughs) And number two switches to threatening mode. He says, we have ways if you drive us to them. It's all done under the strictest medical supervision. (laughs) That's very comforting. (laughs) Yeah. Number six begins yelling at this point. He's kind of disgusted at that little veiled, semi-veiled threat. Uh, that he says, I can guess that from the state of the man you took yesterday. Number two says, the rook? Oh, no, he'll come to no harm. It's just a rehabilitation course. <laughs> After a moment, he decides, well, we can't have you worrying. Get in. So number six gets into the wagon and they head off to the hospital. In the hospital, the rook is in a little room. He's in a wheelchair. He's still in his brown and white striped shirt. And, you know, we've seen various colors of striped shirts throughout the series. You know, there's red ones and blue ones and black ones and so forth. They always seem to have white stripes. But it's only now occurring to me that this a striped shirt is standard old-fashioned prison attire. Mm, like mm-hmm. uh, from Scrooge McDuck, he had, the, I think it was the Beagle Boys who were his <laughs> nemeses, and they always had the striped shirts. And that's just one, I think maybe in Oh Brother Where Art Thou, I think they might have striped <laughs> shirts. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you know, they used to be standard issue in a lot of prisons. Mm-hmm. So these striped shirts that you see so often in the village are probably intended to be an echo of that, and it had just never Never occurred to me before today. (laughs) Anyway, in this room, there are four water coolers. Each of them is opaque plastic. One is olive colored. One's white. One's blue. It's the standard plastic barrel blue. And then there's a yellow one. They're all lined up in a row. Number six and number two are viewing the room through a one-way window. There's a nurse in there puttering around. 
and a doctor enters, and both the nurse and the doctor are women. The nurse says the patient will wake in about a minute. The doctor says you do understand that you mustn't speak to the patient. And the nurse understands. Number two tells number six the treatment's based on Pavlov's experiments. In this one, the patient has been dehydrated. When he wakes, he'll be suffering from an insatiable thirst. The nurse and the doctor leave the room, and the patient, who is the rook, we also see that he's number 59, he begins waking up. He immediately says, water, and he lurches toward the nearest dispenser, the yellow one. A man on the PA system, I thought this was number two at first, but then later on we hear the PA while number two is listening to number six, so we know it's not number two. This man on the PA tells the rook to stay where he is and wait, but the rook ignores him. He goes to the yellow container, and it dispenses no water. He goes to the blue dispenser, and it gives him a good shock. It really yeah. uh, knocks him for a loop. Number six is a very sarcastic line here to number two. He says, don't tell me. It hurts you more than it hurts him. <laughs> and number two replies, in society, one must learn to conform. Mm -hmm. The rook tries the white container next, and uh, just as with the yellow one, no water comes out of it. At this point, he really just, he kind of breaks down. He starts crying, and he's pleading, water, water. The man on the PA says, you get water when you obey. Go to the blue dispenser. Now, the blue dispenser is the one that just shocked him a moment ago. Hey. So the rook is hesitant, but the PA keeps insisting on it. He heads up to it and very, very cautiously tries the faucet. And this time he gets to fill his cup and hmm. he gets a refreshing drink of water. The doctor says, splendid, we did it. <laughs> Number six, again sarcastic, says, you must be proud of yourself. Number two says, we're proud of him. It's been a long struggle. It's clear that this, so this is this guy's breaking point. And it's a little ominous because it implies, you know, there may be a breaking point for number six, and they spent a long time getting to this guy's breaking point. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an interesting little echo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the doctor, in fact, will mention the breaking point in just a moment. She says, he's been giving me a lot of trouble. Number six says, your troubles are only just beginning. He begins to leave, but as he's leaving, he hears the doctor ask number two, if number six is in for treatment, number two says, not yet. <laughs> the doctor says number six is an interesting subject. <laughs> and she's I saying it while he's standing right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he was almost out the door, and then he sort of turned back to, to listen. He's very obviously there. Doctor says he's an interesting subject, and she says, I should like to know his breaking point. And number six replies, well, you could make that your life's ambition. <laughs> and he leaves. Next, he's outdoors. He's near a fountain. He's reading a magazine or a newspaper or something. And the rook is also at this fountain. In the background, we hear the, the music. What's the word? I think it's called diegetic. Like if it was a marching band playing the music, right, it would right. be diegetic. But this is, this is soundtrack music. It's jazzy saxophone music, and it's suggesting intrigue is afoot. The rook notices number six, and he walks off nervously. He's looking behind him to see if he's being followed. Number six doesn't really seem to care much whether he uh, realizes he's being followed or not. 
the rook starts going up a path up a hill, and <laughs> number six rises from a flower bed next to him and stands there staring at him. Which, given that this scene is number six trying to earn the man's confidence, it's not uh, the way I'd go about it, probably. Well, and we may see by the end of the episode that maybe this sort of thing, you know, didn't work out so well for number six. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So the rook begins running now. That kind of freaked him out, understandably. Number six, again, doesn't try to hide that he's following him. The rook thinks he's ducked out of sight into a little shed-like building. But there's a window next to him. Number six pops up in the window and grabs his arm, which probably would make me wet my pants if it happened. It's also kind of like a sight gag. I mean, it's almost funny, which I don't think that was their intent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Rook says, what have I done? Number six says, why did you run? And he's being deliberately intimidating at this point. Mm -hmm. He has reasoning for it that we'll get to. There's a real contrast here from we first saw the rook on the chessboard and he defiantly made his own move. Mm-hmm. And now after he's been broken in that Pavlov thing we saw, he is just, you know, puddling. I mean, he's just. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. He's just beside himself. Yeah. Yeah. They did a number on him. That's for sure. Number six asks him very forcefully, why did you run? The rook says, I don't know. Number six says, running is a sign of resistance. Rook just says, no, a will to escape. Number six says, come with me. And they go somewhere even more secluded. Number six says, how long have you been here? The Rook replies, months, years. Number six says, you still hope. Rook says, to die. There's nothing else. (laughs) Six asks, death is an escape? The Rook says, one day you'll go too far and I'll die and beat you all. Mm-hmm. So he he's clearly convinced that number six is on the bad guy's side here. Yep. The Rook goes on to explain why he's here. He invented a new electronic defense system. He thought that all nations should have it because it would have ensured peace. But the plans were stolen, and the Rook thinks it's funny. Number six doesn't agree with him, at least not at first. But the Rook goes on to say all this to safeguard secrets, then some bumbling bureaucrat lets his bag get swiped. This is an actual thing that happens in government rather reliably. (laughs) So it's entirely plausible. There are people in certain positions where literally you, you know, if let's say you have a briefcase or a bag or you cannot allow it out of your physical connection for any amount of time because of this sort of thing. Now, probably that was more relevant before everything was on a phone or whatever. Oh, yeah. But nowadays it happens to laptops. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Number six asks him, you had nothing to do with it, with the theft. The rook says, I'd die happy if I had. Number six seems to be persuaded that the rook is the sort of guy he's looking for. The rook was planning to give this technology away, which is what made him a traitor and landed him in the village. And then, Mm -hmm. as he says, it didn't matter because they accidentally let it get stolen anyway. And yet they still put him in the village. Yeah. Which is kind of pointless because the technology's out there and he didn't have anything to do with it. But. Yeah, yeah, the horse is out of the barn now. <laughs> but they still put him in the village, just, eh, it could be damage control, who knows. <laughs> <laughs> if they can shut up enough people, they can still make sure that the uh, military-industrial complex can keep selling its weapons and so on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number six tells him, you still have an independent mind. There are very few of us left. The Rook denies it at first, but then he says, us? 
<laughs> Number six tells him we'll talk again, and he leaves, and leaves the rook, looking very worried and confused, mm. which he, he's been all throughout this scene. Number two, relaxing in his egg chair. <laughs> that seems to be uh, something you inherit from number two to number two. Everybody mm. gets the egg chair. He gets a call from his assistant, who's number 56. Number 56 reports that number six is getting friendly with the rook. The big screen shows us the giant chessboard again, but then it pans over to the side of the chessboard, and there's a little bench there where number six and the rook are sitting together. Number six is explaining, we don't hear this yet in audio in the room, but we, we get to see as viewers that number six is explaining that it was his intimidating manner that made him seem to the rook to be one of the guardians, one of the wardens. That was his deliberate strategy. He wanted to see if another resident of the village would be intimidated or would just brush him off. Number two orders up audio for the big screen, but when the sound comes up, it's just number six and the rook discussing chess strategy. <laughs> it's not clear to me how number six timed that right, you know, how he knew when to change topics when the sound came on. Yeah, I, that's one of those things you just have to accept because it's, it's not very <laughs> realistic, yeah. Yeah. Number two listens to this chess strategy discussion, and he says, eh, it seems all right, but at first he wants a watch kept on him. But then he has second thoughts, and he contacts the doctor. The doctor assures him that the rook is, quote, properly integrated, unquote. Number two tells his assistant, I don't think we need to waste time there. Yeah, unusual case of a number two being a little bit wrong. You know, usually they're kind of on top of things and very suspicious, of course. <laughs> At first, I thought, well, that's kind of a lax move. But by the end of the episode, I would say that he was right all along. <laughs> yeah, the, I and, you know, we have no way of knowing. I don't think the Rook would have talked to him at this point, but who knows? Yeah. So number six, now that the audio is cut off again, which, <laughs> which he magically he knows. knows. <laughs> <laughs> he goes back to scheming. Maybe there's a red light on the microphone or something. <laughs> that would be a horrible oversight, but uh, oh well. He goes back to scheming. He says, the guardians pose as prisoners, but none of them would be intimidated by me. Only other prisoners would obey me. That's by way of explaining what he was doing, being scary mm -hmm. before. He says, let's find our reliable men. The first man they approach, he's a gardener, and he brushes them off instantly. They, <laughs> they go up to talk to him, and the guy just gets up and leaves. He doesn't want anything to do with him. So they know he's a guardian. Um, he's a gardener guardian. <laughs> the second man they approach, though, he's a wall painter, and number six puts on a, an inspector act, and the, the painter is properly subservient. So number six says, carry on, number 42, we'll be in touch with you. And so he's judged that this man is actually a prisoner mm -hmm. because he doesn't have that high and mighty attitude. Mm -hmm. Then they go and take the act even further. Uh, they go to the grocer. And we've seen him many times. He's actually one of the few actors who we see throughout the series, right? He's always pretty right. much the guy running the store. Yeah, he was in the in the debut episode, uh, among others. Yeah. He has both big and small maps. The other thing I think uh, is funny if you watch here is because, you know, because he runs a store and has food and everything, he has this apron 
from when he's working. And all through the episode, even at times when it has nothing to do with him being in the store, he's always wearing the apron. No, I do, yeah. Just so we recommend, recognize him. <laughs> but he wouldn't actually be walking around with his work apron all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe he changed into his dress apron. <laughs> but anyway, he demands to inspect the grocer's books. And it turns out that this is one of the subservient ones, too. So very quickly, number six has found three men, at least, who seem to be willing to help him with his cockamamie scheme. Mm-hmm. In the war room, the big screen shows us the rook and the grocer and a man in a blazer who I presume is number 42, although he's dressed differently than he was before. They're all walking together to a patio table where number six is sitting. Number two says to his assistant, can't you get me audio? The assistant says the mic's kaput. (laughs) The assistant guesses that number six has sabotaged it. He'd say he'd bet on it. Number two says they're planning something. Let's have him in for tests. (laughs) So next, we're in the hospital. Number six is lying on a table in there, and he's doing a word association test. And uh, this this may be the uh, one of the things, at least, that reminded yeah. you of Carry On Sergeant. <laughs> yep. My first note under this heading was, they don't have nappy in this one, so Nora doesn't come up. <laughs> Cat. Dog. Rain. Shine. Desk. Work. Hope. Anchor. Anchor? The hope and anchors. Puppies to drink out. <laughs> Tree. Leaf. Home. Away. Return. Game. Love. Game. Game. Tennis. Table. Chair. Ship. Shape. Red. Sails. Free. For all. The doctor says some unusual associations, but nothing significant so far. The doctor summarizes the other tests she's administered. She's personally reviewed the results, and she says positive signs of abnormality. And when she says that, it seems to bother number two a bit. He's like, abnormality? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And total disregard for personal safety and negative reaction to pain, which means he just seems to ignore it. It doesn't influence him. And she says that that faking that would require superhuman willpower, which, (laughs) as we've seen in various episodes, the guy does seem to have superhuman willpower. The queen is wheeled in. She's drugged up. Her eyes are open and Apparently conscious, but she's kind of oblivious to the discussion going on around her. The doctor explains to number two that they're going to use a variation of some experiments that were done with planting transistors in dolphin brains. She says it's not perfected in humans, but it should be good enough. This reminds me, I hadn't thought of this until now, I think there was sort of a a trend in pop culture about dolphins at the time. If you remember, there was a movie, it might be a great one to watch at some point, called The Day of the Dolphin, where they were using dolphins to, and this actually does reflect some Mm. reality, where they used dolphins to plant mines on ships and things. Mm, Yeah. And so I think that that kind of stuff was in the air. Now, was was it 2001 or 2010 that had the dolphin? I think 2010, yeah. Okay. That was part of the background of the scientist guy, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while since I saw either of those. The doctor brings up a a video clip of McGowan. This isn't the black and white publicity still that we've seen in various (laughs) episodes. This is actual color video. And the doctor says, 
see the gentleman on the screen? Isn't he handsome? Isn't he manly? <laughs> and this is the point where I'm thinking, all right, McGowan, it's your show. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> At his points, and I think this is the actress's choice, but, you know, as they're getting her to fall in love with him, she's actually licking her lips at, like, you know, how delicious he looks. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's a she's a neat little actress. I li- I like her in this. She's really not. It's not a role that allows a lot of hamming it up. But although later on, more so, I guess right. there's a little bit. Well, of... Well, one of the things that stands out for me about this series in general, and it was true certainly in Britain at this time in in general. Maybe it's still true now. I don't know. But they cast real looking people into roles. Yeah, yeah. They're not models. And yeah. so normally you would expect this woman to be a model, but she's just a normal, like 30 or 40 something woman, you know, middle-aged woman. And I really like that. I, I like people who feel real in roles like this. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, you could see somebody being madly in love with her, but she's not your glamour mm-hmm. cutout type of person. You know, she's more down to earth looking, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, the casting uh, is, is interesting, it's especially in a secret agent show, because mm-hmm. the, the secret agents always hang out with the really spectacular dames. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may be why number six has a hard time warming up to her, but we can figure it out. <laughs> so the doctor goes on to say, with her little brainwashing routine, she says, you love him passionately, devotedly. You would even betray him and save him from his own folly, which is to say, not let him escape. Mm-hmm. And the doctor puts a little round locket around the queen's neck. It's supposedly a gift from number six, and the queen must always wear it next to her heart. The real reason she has to do that is because it contains a transistor that tracks her heart rate. And the idea is that when she sees number six, her pulse will quicken. And if she fears that she's going to lose him, if she thinks he's going to escape, she'll be frantic, and then the thing will really go off. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk more about this as we go along. I have some questions about this. This <laughs> this is the best <laughs> possible strategy for tracking number six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there are some alternatives that spring to mind, but what the hell. <laughs> It's early in the series. That that could, again, be another uh, suggestion that uh, this was meant to be one of the early episodes. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> okay, so we've gotten to the halfway point, and I'm going to take it on from here. So now we're outside the hospital. We've just seen the queen be kind of brainwashed into loving number six. Although, honestly, I'm not sure she probably needed a lot of brainwashing. I think she was probably (laughs) pretty interested in him already. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I got that impression. So number six leaves the hospital, and the queen comes out right after him and follows, and she's spying on him. She's not a very good spy. (laughs) It's pretty obvious (laughs) that she's following him. And she looks really desperate. She just really wants to be close to him, which in this case, there's an excuse because they've done this programming on her. Right. And in the control room, they watch on video and they're really curious to see if this technique is going to work. So they have this little machine with a red light and it flashes when her heart beats fast. And the scientist is very pleased to see that when the queen can actually see number six, her heart rate goes up and the red light flashes. So that gives them information. The scientist and number two talk, and the plan is that when they've got this thing working, they're going to program her into the alarm system. Right. She's going to be a human alarm. Yeah, and the terminology there is interesting, and I'll come back to that in a bit. 
But again, you know, it's, they have video of every inch of this village and they have audio of pretty much every inch of this village. So <laughs> I'm not quite sure why it's so important to have this very wacky, complicated scheme to observe him even closer. One devil's advocate point I could make is that we just saw a mm. few minutes ago that one of the audio recorders had been knocked out and they suspected number six of having been the culprit there. Mm. So this could just be an additional level of safeguard, maybe. Yeah, that is totally true. Although I think it would be easier just to add a couple more microphones. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. So the doctor then who, another woman, one of the things I noticed in this series is that, first of all, there, in spite of McGowan's issues with women, there are lots of women in positions of power in this series. And often they default to doctors and scientists being women, which I think is pretty interesting, especially for the mm -hmm. time. So the woman doctor who was giving the word association test to number six comes in. She's got the completed report about him. So the scientist takes the report and reads the results to number two. And guess what? It turns out that number six has aggressive tendencies. <laughs> yeah, never would have guessed. And the scientist, you know, being a scientist just immediately wants to solve anything that seems to be a problem. So she immediately suggests we need to give him a leucotomy. I'd never heard of a leucotomy before. So mm -hmm. I looked this up. It turns out it's a prefrontal lobotomy, <laughs> which inescapably makes me think of Dr. Demento and the uh, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me. <laughs> than a frontal lobotomy. <laughs> Daddy, what's a frontal lobotomy? Well, son, you know how the pressures of life can cause people to do crazy things. And if a person does too many crazy things, then that person is crazy. Sometimes you can keep yourself from going crazy by doing things to relieve tension, like drinking or having sex. But if craziness goes too far, sometimes the only thing left to do is to cut out that part of your brain that makes you crazy. That kind of brain surgery is called a frontal lobotomy. Maybe this song will help you understand what I mean. different paths Jimmy always listened to my mother and me I never liked to take a bath as we grew and tumbled through adulthood the pressure caused emotional drain and now I'm slowly dying in the bottle and Jimmy has to live with half a brain yes me I've got a bottle in front of me and Jimmy has a frontal lobotomy just different ways to kill the pain the same rather have a bottle in front of me than have to have a frontal lobotomy. I might be drunk, but at least I'm not insane. A frontal lobotomy is a very extreme method of solving problems like this. <laughs> you know, once you said leucotomy, I didn't bother looking it up, but now that you point out that that's what it is, she may be going a little overboard there. <laughs> Well, like I say, she really wants to solve a problem when it's presented. So she's going to jump right to the thing that's going to do it. <laughs> but number two is stuck with the usual guidelines of having to not damage number six. So, you know, yeah. giving him a quick prefrontal lobotomy just isn't a solution, no matter how convenient that would be. <laughs> yeah. So now back outside, 
Number six suddenly jumps into a buggy that has no one in it and drives off. Now, this is a big no-no, right? These are taxis, and they're only supposed to be driven by the appropriate people, and you're not allowed to just get into a vehicle and drive somewhere because this is the village. (laughs) The queen who's following him jumps into another one and, and follows him. And one of the things she does throughout the episode whenever she's driving is she's constantly honking the horn, and there's this little (laughs) three-note honk. (laughs) And I guess it gets people to get out of the way, but it's really annoying. It also means she's not being very subtle in her following. (laughs) (laughs) They asked number two what to do. Should they do something to stop number six? And he's like, nah, I want to see how well this new device works. And again, it's a terminology thing because he's referring to the queen in this experiment they've done to make her, you know, fall in love with him and transmit her emotions. He doesn't see her as a human. She's just a device. Yeah, although to be charitable, he could be talking about that locket that does all the (laughs) sensing. Yeah, but, you know, I combine that with them saying they're going to plug her into the security network. And I think when you combine those, like, yeah, she's just a, you know, a thing, you know, she's just a piece of functionality to be put into their system. Yeah. Just another component. Sure. It's a fair argument. Number six, being a spy manages to shake her with a classic turn off onto a hard to see side road. You know, she (laughs) drives by and he goes and picks up the rook. As he drives off with the rook, we get that classic bond style action music that says, Hey, we're going to have like a montage and you know, it's on, here we go. You can actually enjoy watching this show. (laughs) And, and, you know, I have to admit whenever you get that kind of action music, I'm like, okay, this is going to be fun, right? Oh Yeah. And in the control room, they get upset because the red light is showing no activity because she can't see number six. Then we see number six and the rook sneaking through the village, avoiding cameras, you know, hiding behind shrubs and such to avoid the cameras. The rook goes up behind one of the cameras and uses a screwdriver, kind of surprising that he'd be able to get his hands onto a screwdriver the way they control things Yeah, that could be a weapon. (laughs) Yeah. And he disables the camera. At first, it seems like, oh, well, probably they're just disabling the cameras. But no, then they actually steal the camera. And you realize, oh, they want the components inside the camera for something they're doing. Mm. Then they go to one of the phone booths and they steal a wireless phone. So these guys are incorrigible. Honestly, if I were running this place, I would want to, you know, bust them because, hey, you're screwing everything up. No, no, sure. (laughs) Now, particularly clever is after, you know, the first they did the camera, then they went to the phone. And what becomes apparent is they know that number two or the control room is going to have sent the electrics people to replace the camera that they stole. Mm -hmm. So realizing that they wait for the electrics guy to show up in his electrics buggy. And when he walks off to replace the camera, they then steal more equipment from the buggy. (laughs) I thought that was pretty clever. (laughs) Yeah. And that's a, that's a similar ploy. I mean, lots of criminals use that to get stuff delivered to them. But as they're driving around, the queen finally finds them in her own buggy. (laughs) She's honking like crazy, (laughs) following after them. 
And I'm going to say, you know, because she now believes she's in a relationship and that he loves her. <laughs> this is my nightmare kind of relationship where you're driving around and your girlfriend is behind you honking and following you all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's kind of the intent. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so number six, realizing he needs to deal with the queen. He has the rook take the buggy uh, to go hide the stuff that they stole. And then he gets in the queen's buggy to humor her and says, you have a lot of explaining to do, haven't you? <laughs> in the control room, they're happy because the red light starts flashing again because now that she's near him, her heart rate is going up. <laughs> and now being in the beginning of a relationship, <laughs> number six and the queen have one of those talks you have about your future. <laughs> she says she loves him. Number six says, love, you're crazy. <laughs> And she says, yes, about you. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty good response. <laughs> and, and he has a natural response. He says, you don't even know me. <laughs> and she still manages to take that and kind of judo flip it. And she says, but I know how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> and number six is mean to her and makes her cry, you know, which seems to be very ungentlemanly of him. <laughs> She grabs his arm. She just wants to be near him. <laughs> and number six is just clearly annoyed. And he says, and everybody's near in this place, far too near. <laughs> so, again, him kind of reflecting me. And, you know, I suspect oh, yourself yeah. as well. We tend to like our space. <laughs> oh, sure. And, you know, you remember from every time we see that intro, he's got his pictures of deserted beaches that he was yeah, planning yeah. to head off to. <laughs> yeah. And you don't notice like pictures of girlfriends or kids or anything. No, he just, you know, he's a bachelor. And the conversation closes with her saying, why risk your life? We could be happy together. <laughs> Number six says, really? <laughs> and yeah, this whole thing, as we'll see, as it goes along, it does feel like some kind of commentary, maybe from McGowan, you know, or the writer on intimate relationships, but it's someone who clearly has had some bad girlfriend experiences. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's at night. Although one of the things I'll say, even though I, I said I really like the photography in this because they're actually in Port Marion for most of the time, and that's really great. But the other thing that's true in this episode is they do a lot of day for night. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that's fine, but, you know, it's pretty obvious as we go along. Anyway, it's night. We're in number six's apartment. He's in the bathroom. He's in a bathrobe. I don't think you've ever seen him in a bathrobe before. Sure. He's preparing for bed, you know, brushing his teeth. <laughs> and suddenly he hears a noise in his apartment. And he goes out, and it's the queen. And I guess it's not a bathrobe, but she's basically also in a robe. <laughs> she's at the stove, and she's merrily humming along as she fixes hot chocolate for the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> and this reminded me of uh, an experience from my childhood. So my grandfather and grandmother had this bizarre thing where... My grandfather had hearing aids. My grandmother had this irrepressible need to whistle while she was doing stuff. <laughs> well, when she would whistle, his hearing aids would freak out. Oh, boy. And so he would get annoyed at that and yell at her, and then he would turn off his hearing aids. Mm. And then she would call for him and he couldn't hear her because he had turned <laughs> off his hearing aids, and then she'd be yelling at him. and. I'm not kidding. Every single time I was in my grandparents' house, the exact same scenario, you know, <laughs> happened. 
They never figured out a way around it. Yeah, this just called <laughs> it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> so number six seems to be bemused. He's not quite sure what's going on. And the queen turns around, sees he's there, and she starts making kind of casual evening relationship conversation. Like, oh, how was his day? Did he have a hard day? Is there anything he wants to tell her? <laughs> and he <laughs> says, yes. How did you get in here? <laughs> <laughs> And they go round and round. And it's funny because in two ways, literally he starts walking in circles around the apartment and she's following right behind him. And they're going around and around in their conversation. It's just going nowhere. <laughs> and then the radio announces a curfew in 10 minutes, you know, which immediately to me anyway, led to the question of, well, if the curfew is coming up, is she going to stay in his place? <laughs> or is she right, going to leave? Yeah. That occurred to me, although uh, I had a feeling that McGowan would not stand for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of which, the next thing he does is now he turns mean and he yells at her to get out and she starts crying again. And then something seems to impact him and he decides to take a different tack. And maybe he realizes like something's been done to her or, you know, something's going on mm. and he starts being nicer. He says, no, you're not bothering me. And as soon as he says something nice to her, she completely cheers up and forgets everything else and him being mean to her and everything. She says, oh, I'll make more hot chocolate for us, which again kind of implies maybe she'd be staying over in that case. Mm -hmm. And then she asks if she can see him again. <laughs> and I love this line from number six, like, oh, yes, I'm here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> They're in the village. Where is he going to go? <laughs> <laughs> Now, though, she runs out to meet the curfew, but she's all happy. She waves cheerily to him. He waves back to her with a smile. So seems like he has a new strategy, you know, and we'll see how this goes. And now we're daytime at the beach <laughs> and we see the beach a lot in the rest of the episode. And I'm going to, and this is the actual beach at Port Marion. It's clear they're <laughs> really filmed it there. And I'll say right up front, it looks miserable at this particular time of year. It's clear it's cold, it's muddy. <laughs> I don't think I would want to be there. And I'm guessing the actors and extras just had to kind of make the best of having to run around on this beach looking like they're having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then again, that's what the village is all about. <laughs> it's also true that in England and elsewhere, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the beach. It's going to be cold. I guess you just have to deal with yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we now see the Rook here in beachwear, which seems a little odd for him, right? He's this kind of electronic science guy. I wouldn't really expect to see him on the beach like this. He's carrying some kind of satchel with some stuff in it. And number two comes to him out of nowhere. Seems to be checking up on him. They have a little conversation. And number two concludes by saying, keep taking those pills. And remember, if you get another attack of egotism, don't wait. Go back to the hospital immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll say, you know, if egotism is such an illness, I'm in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm wondering if to some extent this was a reaction to, you know, they mentioned the cult of the individual mm. earlier in the episode and the egotism now. And, you know, in the, in the 1960s, there was a little undercurrent of, in philosophy, it's called egoism, the philosophy where, you know, you put yourself first. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like the books of Ayn Rand have been called, you know, a, a subcategory of that or, you know, a subset of that. But that but that philosophy was getting a big foothold in American culture back in the 60s, even though it never got nearly 
as widespread as, say, the, you know, the new left and the hippies and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but it was an undercurrent at that time. Mm-hmm. So that may be why we see it being discussed in this episode, because it was kind of a topical issue at the right, time. Right, right. Uh, so the Rook takes his leave of number two, and he ducks into a dressing tent, and then eventually on the beach. So they have, you know, I don't know if we have these these days, but, you know, in the old days on the beach, so you could do dressing and everything, they'd have these tents. I guess they still do. I've been at beaches that have usually not tents now. They're like, you know, wooden uh, little shacks or something you can go into yeah, to dress. They- they had the changing booths, but I think I think you can still get those little pop-up tents that you just plunk mm. down wherever it's convenient. <laughs> and it turns out that they are using this tent strategically because it's one of the few places in the village where there's no cameras. Mm-hmm. So number six enters, and the rook is bent over, and he's working on some electronics. And then number six does something really unusual in the series, which is he does a practical joke. He has an antenna in his hand and he pokes the rook in the back with it and freaks the rook out. (laughs) And it was kind of funny, but also I I think there's a meaning here. You know, again, it's not his in his personality, I think, to make practical jokes, but they're showing that he's very comfortable with the rook. He trusts him. Mm -hmm. Sure. And he's having a real personal interaction that he wouldn't have with almost anyone else in the village. Yeah. Yeah. It could very well be. And it turns out he broke the antenna off a taxi and they're going to be able to use it <laughs> for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Rook says he needs more transistors. Now, we don't know what they're doing. We don't know what the plan is, but they clearly have one. One of the rules I learned from Scooby-Doo, <laughs> I mentioned this before, is, you know, <laughs> if the plan is going to fail, they tell you what the plan is ahead of time so you know how it failed. If the plan uh-huh. is going to succeed, they don't tell you. So in this case, they have not told us the plan. So it may be that they're going to escape. Yeah. So number six heads out to get some transistors for the Rook. And he stumbles across the queen who just happens to be on the beach. It does seem to be coincidental. She's wrapped in a beach towel and she immediately wants some together time with her love. (laughs) And number six, I guess he doesn't want to make a scene. So he decides to, you know, interrupt his plans and spend some time with her without complaint. But then she has to start talking (laughs) and she says, you know, you've been very unkind. If I didn't know you better, I'd think you didn't love me anymore. (laughs) And he's very blunt. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) And now it gets really weird because she says, if you don't love me, why did you give me this locket? And we get some ominous music in the background. And he says, you've got the wrong man. And again, she has a good response. If I've got the wrong man, why have I got the right photograph? (laughs) So he has to look at this locket and he opens it and sees that it does indeed have a photo of him in there. But he notices on the other side, which they didn't attempt to disguise at all, some electronics (laughs) inside the locket. And he asks her where she got it. And he says, well, of course you gave it to me. He says, well, you know what? This is a bad photograph. I'm going to give you another one. And he takes off with the locket, which he's not happy about. And the the electronics in the locket, it struck me kind of funny, and maybe it's just my ignorance of electrical engineering, but the electronics are basically just two fat wires. <laughs> they're, it's like, uh, they're like the, the gauge of wire that you'd use to hook up a, 
a wall outlet or something, <laughs> you know, and they're just little snips of this, this wire glued. Yeah, I noticed the, the same thing. I mean, it was clearly <laughs> just, you know, they clearly just chose something to say, look, there's electronics in here. <laughs> don't, don't ask any more questions. <laughs> and kind of related to that, it's funny. So number six goes back to the tent on the beach and shows the locket to the Rook. And the Rook tells him it's a reaction transmitter. <laughs> How he would know that by looking at a couple wires in the locket, I don't know. But he does explain that it didn't actually communicate voices. So that was a concern of number six. Now, again, how he could tell that, I don't know. <laughs> then again, he is a world-class electrical engineer. That's so. true. <laughs> and ironically, the locket has the last components that he needs for their scheme. So now they can be ready for tonight. And this time tomorrow, he says, they'll be free. Mm -hmm. And then the series will be over, and that will be the surprise <laughs> secret of my episode order. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's something that it really occurred to me. Uh, I mean, it occurs to me with pretty much every episode I watch of this, but it's particularly for some reason with this episode is the... Uh, the Gilligan's Island syndrome, you know, you just, you know, they're never getting off the island. <laughs> now I'm waiting for, um, what's that basketball team? The, um, Harlem, Harlem Globetrotters to show up in the village. That'll be great. <laughs> oh, that'd be good. Yeah. Have a nice little crossover. <laughs> that castaway clown and his crew return in an all new world premiere movie. Ready when you are. With special guest stars, the Harlem Globetrotters. Who are the Harlem Globetrotters? And Scat. Man Brothers. We're going to show some jazz, pizzazz, and razzmatazz. Basketball's crazies team up with the Castaway Zanies. G-I-L-L-I-G-A-N. And now, the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island. So now we're back in the control room, and they're freaking out because the locket has stopped transmitting. And so they start looking around on video. They, you know, I guess they got a little lazy. They stopped tracking on video since the locket was doing their job for them. And so they start looking for the queen in number six, and, and they find the queen on the beach on video, and they zoom in and see that she's not wearing the locket. So they start looking around on the beach for number six, and luckily for them, he is walking around on the beach. That means they're not going to get punished for losing him. It's not like he escaped <laughs> in the meantime. Yeah. And what they see him doing is like going to some table that's selling stuff and he buys something and we don't know what that is. And it's funny because normally I think they would be curious about that, but they're so relieved that they're not going to get punished that I think they don't really pay attention to what he's doing. <laughs> mm, yeah. We go back to the beach and number six is back in the tent with the Rook. And now in the tent, they have a long flotation raft thing, you know, so kind of the thing you'd you know, put in a swimming pool or something and float around in. Hmm. Now they have everything they need. So number six leaves to tell the others. And he walks around to various people in the village who are on their team. And his message is tonight at moonset, Rook to Queen's Pond six, check. <laughs> mm -hmm. and this tells them what they need to know. I actually realized I'd never heard the term moonset before. I've heard moonrise and I looked it up. Mm. And of course, just like sunset and sunrise, there's moon rise and moonset. Hmm. And it does mean, you know, when the moon goes below the horizon. Yeah, it's not a term. I, I, I may have heard it once or twice, but I can't recall any specific time. It's just, 
It's not really something that has a lot of general utility, I would think. <laughs> well, it, it does remind me of the fact that a lot of people do not realize that the moon is visible during the day all the time. Mm, right? You know, we yeah. think it was a nighttime thing, and we just kind of get that programmed into us. Here's another funny thing. So, you know, he goes around to like half a dozen conspirators to let them know what's up with the plan. And when he gets to the guy who's a painter who we saw in the beginning of the episode, the painter is in the exact same spot painting the exact same column at the exact same point as he was previously. <laughs> and it's clear that they yeah. just filmed all that at once with the painter and didn't bother to move him in between. Oh, sure. Like, wow, this is either a really bad painter or a really detail-oriented painter. <laughs> Several <laughs> days later, he said. <laughs> oh, yeah. Of course, this being the show that it is, that could be deliberate to have that sort of surreal absurdity. You know. <laughs> could be. Yes, I'm going to go with, you know, it was just easiest to shoot it all at once and not move him, but that could be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now we're back to evening, or shall we say day for night, which uh, I learned in, you know, there's the movie Day for Night, which is a really good movie if you've never seen a French movie, mm. which is actually called the American Shot, because that's the French term for day for night is the American Shot. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's what we're known for. Yep. yep. <laughs> that's our contribution to cinema. <laughs> And probably not the most thing we're most proud of. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like anything else. It can be done well or done poorly. Yep. <laughs> so the Rook and number six are rushing to the beach tent, you know, in the evening. And they have all the electronics together and they've created some kind of transmitter. And number six is now transmitting a Mayday call. And after a couple of moments, they actually get a response from the MS Palatska, which I assume would be Russian... You it know, does sound Polish, maybe, some, you know. yeah, it sounds some kind of Eastern European, but just a guess. Yep. Number six has worked this all out. He pretends he's calling from a plane that has a, an engine on fire and is about to crash. And the Palaska asked for coordinates. <laughs> and now we, I have to say, after all the electronic stuff in this and all the advanced things in the prisoner, this is the funniest thing to me. Because he doesn't want to tell them the coordinates, so he takes a piece of paper and crumples it to emulate static so that they can't hear, you know, what he's saying. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty basic. <laughs> <laughs> Very low tech, let's put it that way. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I guess they're fooled by it. <laughs> now, the control room is also listening to this call. And they call number two to inform him. And at first, I assume, as usual, that they totally realize what's going on, et cetera. But they actually don't. They think there mm -hmm. really is an aircraft. They didn't recognize number six's voice. They think there really is an aircraft that's crashing. And they want to know what they should do. And number two says, well, if this boat's dealing with it, you can leave them to handle it. Now, I'll just insert a note here. We've seen this multiple times before. There is a way that this show ch cheats. They'll show you these conversations that should be legitimate conversations among the people who are running the village where they say things that don't actually fit into what's really going on, right? Like it's, it's mm -hmm. there to lead you off the trail, but it's not really a conversation that would occur once you know everything. Mm, yeah. I know. Yeah. Where they're, where they're discussing a situation as if it's a genuine problem, right. but it's actually something they already know is. Yeah, moot. exactly. Exactly. So yeah, they're cheating here <laughs> <laughs> as we will see anyway. So then we see the Rook and number six rushing that flotation device, little raft thing to the water. They've got the electronic device there and they 
turn on a transponder, just this thing that's transmitting some signal to say where they are. And the rook shoves off into the water with the raft. And number six says to wait for his signal, and then he runs off. In the control room, we see something really interesting, probably unique in the series again, which is they defy number two, who just said, don't worry about this, let the boat deal with it. And they keep following up on this, and they hear the transponder, and they decide to do a radar search to see if they can see where the transponder is, because they believe it's a down plane, and they want to see if they can figure out where it is. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, number six has gone to the stone boat, which is a feature in the series, and all the conspirators are waiting inside there. And he says, look, our job is to prevent action from the Guardians until the boat gets to us. Now, we see something I don't, we've never seen it before. We don't really usually see the village at night. So it turns out that there's a tower, the tallest hill in the village. And in the tower, they have a searchlight that's going around in circles the whole time, you know, just like a prison so they can see what's going on. Got to enforce the curfew. Yep. So they sneak up to the searchlight, go up the stairs, and have a fist fight with the people running the searchlight, you know, and knock them out or throw them over the side. And they turn off the searchlight. Then we go to number two's office, and this is really interesting and surprising. Up to now, as I mentioned earlier, he had a very colorful, tasteful suit all the time when we see him. Mm -hmm. And now he's completely different. He is in a lotus position wearing a white robe with a black belt. So we'll see, basically, it's a karate outfit. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, meditating or something, and he has a, a locket around his neck. And he gets a call, and he's clearly very unhappy to be disturbed by the call. He told them not to interrupt him right now. And they tell him, well, but the searchlight just got knocked out. He says, okay, I'll be right over. And then, and this is bizarre, he just suddenly screams, Kah! and he karate chops this little board in front of him in half. <laughs> and the weird thing about this is he, he's a perfectly good number two, but he would have been way more interesting if they showed us this side of him earlier on in the episode. Because mm-hmm. we're now at the end, so it's like, what's the point of this? And also, the whole karate thing doesn't go anywhere. If they'd shown yeah. him doing this earlier in the episode, and maybe if him using karate on number six or something had come into play later in the episode, you know, there'd be a natural flow. So honestly, I have to say, and I didn't see anything about this, but, and and again, we'll talk about this actor who played number two more. I have a suspicion that he wanted this inserted to give him some character, but but because they hadn't worked it throughout, it wasn't part of the plot. It just got plopped into this. Because why else would you do this? It has nothing to do with any other part of the show. Yeah. But then again, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is interesting. It's there. I just, it could have been so much more interesting if they'd done something with it. Yeah. And in fact, to, to just kind of show how, you know, much it's not part of the episode, number six and his crew are now sneaking into number two's building and they go to his office and he's now standing there in his full normal suit, you know, his n- nice, tasteful, colorful regalia. So again, right. if they'd found him in the karate suit, Maybe that would be interesting, right? And maybe he could mm-hmm. have a fight with him. But no, he's just back to normal. And that karate scene had nothing to do with anything else. <laughs> and the crew now ties him up. It's kind of a, and he even comments on how silly it is. You know, they just literally take this big rope and kind of loop it around his hands. It's very primitive. <laughs> and they can hear the transponder signal on number two's equipment in his office. And then the transponder suddenly stops. 
And the crew, especially the guy who runs the shop, want to leave because they're like, the ship must be here. We got to get out there. And number six says, wait a second. This is way too soon. The ship couldn't have got here yet. I'm going to go check on things. Mm -hmm. So he runs out to the beach and he finds that raft, that flotation device on the beach, abandoned by the rook. And he sees the boat off in the distance. So the implication here is that maybe the rook got to the boat and abandoned them. Mm -hmm. So, but because he's got the raft there, number six desperately takes it and, and rows out to the boat. So it takes them probably a while, who knows how long it gets to the boat. Yeah. It's not clear exactly why the rook isn't there. Like maybe he was abducted by somebody too. Mm -hmm. it's, it, there, there's different options. Yeah. Yeah. We just don't know what happened. So he gets to the number six, gets to the boat. They take him on board and everything seems on the up and up. And he has to meet the skipper and the skipper says, wow, you've had a lucky escape. And number six is, you don't know how lucky. And then we suddenly see number two sitting in that, uh, egg, as you said, or billiard ball, sometimes <laughs> credit chair, not tied up. Turns out he's on a television and he says, I hate to disappoint you. The Palatska is our ship. Hmm. And number six says, what happened? And number two says there's been a slight misunderstanding. And the camera in number two's office pans to the rook standing there. <laughs> and number six says, you, you're one of them. And the rook says very sincerely, no, I'm not. You are. <laughs> you tried to trap me. And now to be really cruel, number two says to the rook, no, actually you're mistaken. You are maligning number six. <laughs> <laughs> so the deal here is that the yeah. rook thought number six was trying to trap him with his plan. So he went to number two and only now does he find out that in fact, number six was sincere and this was a real attempt to escape. And the Rook is devastated. Yeah. And number two explains to number six that he overlooked the fact that he was applying this test to everyone to determine whether they were a guardian or a prisoner. And he overlooked the fact that the Rook would apply the test to number six himself. So number two says, when you took command of this little venture, your heir of authority convinced the Rook that you were one of us. Yeah. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yep. <laughs> number six asks what's happened to the others. Number two says they'll be back tomorrow on the chessboard as pawns. <laughs> and the camera pans down to a pawn on number two's console. You might think it'd almost be the end of the episode, but it's not. We actually have several more minutes <laughs> of material here. Number six, being on a ship, decides to take another chance, and he gets in a fist fight with the crew and knocks everybody out. But I, I'm going to question his strategy here, because the first thing he does before he gets in the fist fight is he takes this big, heavy ashtray, you know, glass ashtray, and he throws it at the TV and destroys the TV. And that may have been emotionally satisfying, because that's where number two was. But he could have used that ashtray to knock out <laughs> the crew. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, he does end up knocking everyone out. Number two is still watching him impassively, so apparently he has a camera somewhere else. Yeah. And then he has Rover sent up from the depths, so we see that whole thing where Rover's kind of getting generated in the water to come up. Number six knocks everyone out, but when he goes to the ship's controls, he finds that he can't actually steer the ship. It's been, mm -hmm. he's been locked out and then he hears Rover roaring. So we go back to the beginning of the episode where we heard that. We saw something almost identical in another 
episode where he stole a, a speedboat and the steering just locked up on him. Yeah. Although I think in that one, Rover actually knocked him into the water and dragged yeah. him to shore. Yep. But still, similar situation. They have remote control on all these things. Yeah, so the ship is auto-steering back, and then we see that Rover is following it, which is kind of amusing. I guess it, I, and actually it makes sense. It's like, if he jumps overboard, Rover's going to pick him up, so there's no reason for him to do that. Yeah. Um, especially based on his previous experiences. Yeah. And now, back in number two's office, the butler takes the pawn that was on number two's console, and this turns out to be the pawn that number six was playing at the beginning of the episode. And he mm. places it back on the board in front of the queen, making the chessboard mm -hmm. pristine. And it's the end of the episode. So, you know, we never did find out if that woman stayed in love with him. <laughs> That's true. Don't know if she can be unconditioned. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this story. As I mentioned up front, really quite a packed story for one episode. A lot of stuff going on here. Oh, yeah. Jeez. I mean, I took notes on a half hour of the show, and I think I was like five and a half pages of notes or something <laughs> yeah. like that, which, yeah. you know, a Doctor Who episode is maybe maybe two pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what what did you think of his test for the prisoners and guardians? It's a good theory at first, but... You have to realize at some point they're likely to catch on that, and then the guardians are going to adjust their behavior accordingly from that point forward, which could be another reason for considering this an earlier episode. Yeah, it is a pretty simplistic thing, which I think just, you know, it's just a matter of the writing for a show like this. Like, you only have so much time, and, you know. So, yeah. Um, I thought it was really interesting that, Ultimately, number six is betrayed by his own overconfidence and probably his condescension toward the other prisoners that he's working with, you know, that made them think that he was one of the guardians. And given that Patrick McGowan, I think, has those attributes, obviously very confident and prepossessing, if that's the right word. So to some degree, I'm surprised that he would portray those attributes as a potential weakness. Yeah, although... Uh we have discussed in the past that he has a strong Catholic streak in him. I'm not an expert on Catholicism, but I know that the the church has tries to have a well-rounded philosophy about all these various things that are virtues when in good measure can mm. become vices if they're taken to excess. So depending on what aspects of Catholicism were interesting to him, he might he might be trying to, you know, put little moral messages in there, or maybe <laughs> trying to make himself a better person. Yeah. But who knows? And it is a real victory for the village because this is a case where, if they hadn't instilled so much paranoia in everyone, he would have escaped. Mm -hmm. You know, but because you really, really can't trust anyone you're talking to, they couldn't actually put this together. Yeah, it was worth a shot, though. It's a good learning experience for him. <laughs> so let's talk about the actors. We had the queen, obviously. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, she was good. I uh, I, I liked her, and she uh, she was convincing uh, throughout, I thought. And it was, I think maybe the, the discussion they initially had when they were on the chessboard is a stronger mm -hmm. piece of evidence for the theory that this should be one of the early episodes because... 
as we discussed, the, the questions he asks during that, they're questions mm-hmm. he wouldn't need to ask later on. Mm-hmm. But that's not about the queen so much as just uh, her, her right. role in it. Well, I think uh, she, but, she felt like a legitimate person, unfortunately with some very legitimate flaws. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That they were then able to exploit very well. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that she uh, she didn't seem to know when not to talk, and that was uh, <laughs> very, very damaging if you're trying to engage in intrigue to escape a place like the village. <laughs> you have right, to have right. discretion. <laughs> so, and this is what I would say is my other connection to Carry On Sergeant, which is, you know, the character Nora in there is a woman who stalks <laughs> sort of inappropriately mm, yeah, sure. the guy. <laughs> and I feel like, well, I think this is very real and, you know, I've had to deal with something like this in my life. We look at these things, I feel like maybe there was sort of an unfortunate thing being presented about women at the time of these kind of, you know, out of control stalkers. Right? Yeah. 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 I don't think either sex is a monopoly in stalking. Yeah. Yeah, probably, probably, you know, I think certainly I would argue, well, and I think one of the things I'd say here, not to say maybe there are other shows that presented it, you know, it's more, much more likely for, for a guy to do that. Probably, yeah. But in the things we've happened to watch for the time, they, they represent women as doing it and the guys as sort of being put upon. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yep. And then there's Fatal Attraction, of course, that was a a classic in that genre. (laughs) Yep. What do you think about The Rook? I liked him. He uh, uh, he came across as very, very convincingly horrified or terrified after mm. after his treatment. Yeah, he was just kind of like the little his little version of Tiananmen Square was a chessboard square. You know, <laughs> he, he took his stand there and mm-hmm. uh, got a whole lot of abuse for his pains. But uh, but at least he he took a stand. So that's, I thought he was a good actor. Also, Uh, he seemed believable at each aspect of what he was doing. And in particular, one thing I think could be hard for actors is that whenever he was dealing with the electronics, you felt like, yeah, this is a guy who understands electronics, right? He Mm. he knew how to present that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't notice it, but I, it it didn't seem, I didn't notice it being bad. So I I guess it worked for me. (laughs) Yeah. No, I like to. Now, this is really interesting. Number two is uh, played by an actor, sort of named Peter Wingard. He actually started out with another name, but like many actors, he changed his name. Well, before I get into his background, what did you think of him as a number two? I, I enjoyed him. He, he's probably one of the ones I liked more. I mean, you know, number twos are all basically evil, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he's still a, as a, as, as a character, uh, I thought he was very entertaining, and uh, you know, for uh, I thought he did a fair job of pulling off the eyeliner. It seemed appropriate to this <laughs> this particular number two. There's some of them I wouldn't have recommended it for. <laughs> so my criticism would be not for the acting. I think the actor did everything he could. Probably went above and beyond with the material he had. From the writing perspective, they gave him very little. Mm-hmm. And then that's where you get into this oddity that in the very end of the episode, they suddenly give him this interesting character trait of being a kind of meditating karate guy, but yeah. they don't use that in the story in any way. <laughs> and, or, you know, and again, if they'd done that earlier on, they could have integrated it into the story. So it just makes me think it was sort of a afterthought. So I was intrigued and I, I looked up this actor and it turns out that so he died at 90, so in 2018. Oh, wow. So he lived almost till now and, you know, had a good long life. 
And for his entire life, he lied about everything about his background. (laughs) So (laughs) nothing that he said about where he was born and how he grew up and who his parents were, none of it was true. (laughs) (laughs) And he maintained, as, as they say in Wikipedia, he maintained the falsehoods until he died. And the Guardian said his life is shrouded in mystery. (laughs) Mm, Kind of like uh, Tommy Wiseau. He's an interesting person, Mm -hmm. and I think there's nothing faulting his performance in the story, but I just think they could have done so much more with him. Yeah, I wonder when you were looking him up, did had he has he been in a lot of other things? Well, he was in a couple of very popular series in Britain about an author who turns into a detective. And he also was considered a style icon. So I put a picture in our document here that you can look at mm. that shows this very 60s, you know, open shirt, you oh, know, hairy yeah. chest, uh, amulet Big medallion. Thing. Yeah. yeah. And then, <laughs> and he looks very different in the show because he has very unkempt hair where in the show he was much more kind of proper. So he apparently was a real style icon at the time yeah. and a well-known actor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was like. I was expecting he might have been in some other notable things because he he just he does have a fair amount of presence in this mm-hmm. in this show here. So I could see him pulling off some other roles pretty well. I think it's to his credit that he stands out because again, going by the script, some other actor this might have been a completely forgettable mm-hmm. character. Oh yeah, and I think he br- everything that was there he brought to it. Yeah, yeah. and the the wardrobe choices and whatnot that doesn't <laughs> hurt because he's got the eyeliner he's got the vivid scarf you know and this interesting thing is things. one thing i didn't i had no idea of until relatively recently when i would start you know researching these kinds of things is that the wardrobe i would normally think oh the director or the wardrobe person or whatever decides that but in most cases that's not true actually the actor usually has a lot of involvement in choosing their wardrobe mm-hmm. you know they'll work mm-hmm. with the costume person maybe with the director so that probably, and given that he was known for his stylist dress sense, I'm going to guess that he had a lot to do with that choice. Yeah, could be. Yeah. <laughs> so before we get on to other stuff, the big question for you then, is it an episode worth watching for a modern viewer? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's, uh, I'd, I've, I've found this show to be consistently worth watching so far. I can't think of an episode yet that I would steer people away from it. Uh, I mean, some are weirder than others, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> overall, a uh, high-quality show. I'm, I'm liking yeah, it. Yeah, and where I would say, I think this is a good, strong episode. It brings together several themes that have been covered, pre, you know, hinted at previously about guardians and prisoners and, you know, escape and everything else. It doesn't, I wouldn't put it in the first tier. Like, I like mm-hmm. something like Schizoid Man mm-hmm. better you know, I think it's more, a little more special, but I think it's a, you know, it's a good, strong episode. And another one that kind of represents really what people think of when they think of the prisoner, right? Him trying to escape and getting screwed over. Right. So let's talk about the ordering. You know, I mentioned at the beginning, this is film third, clearly intended to be shown early, but even they didn't actually show it until uh, the ninth episode. So they mm. put it later than I did when they showed it. And... My reasoning for putting it here is, honestly, one of the things I wanted to avoid is there are obviously several escape attempts throughout the series. Hmm. And I don't want to put those all up against each other because it gets repetitive. Oh, he's trying to escape again. He's trying to escape again. He's trying to escape again. Hmm. 
So I want to space those out. And I actually think if you space them out properly, which we'll see if I've done, that there is an arc to his escape attempts throughout the series. Hmm. But, uh, you know, let me ask you, and I think it's clear because you mentioned it several times, it feels like to you that this, this really should go earlier because it feels like an early show. So am I putting words in your mouth? Yeah, or? no, that, that's accurate. I, I, I overall have the impression that there, there are enough things that number six is still curious about and, and doesn't grasp that uh, this, this seems to be meant to be an early episode mm-hmm. uh, while he's still getting to know the village. Um, right. So, uh, and, uh, you know, you, there's certainly a, a case to be made that the evidence isn't strong enough that it makes that much of a difference, really. But I think just mm-hmm. if you wanted to be strictly logical about it, you know, the, you'd probably somewhere in the early shows is where this one would go. Okay. Well, when we get to the end of all this, you know, maybe we'll try to figure out what uh, the order would be in the future and see mm. how it fits. You know, you get into these challenges, of course, as I've said, of like, oh, well, okay, if you put this early, then this goes here. But wait, now this doesn't, you know, and, and so you're always in this perpetual process of trying to figure this out, right? Which is, right. again, one of the things that makes this an interesting series because you can never get it perfect. <laughs> Yeah, if if I apply myself to it, I'll be able to get it perfect. I just don't know <laughs> okay. if I'll apply myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, next up in our perfect or semi-perfect or <laughs> whatever <laughs> calling it order is Living in Harmony. So we will All see right. you next week. Yep.